Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me. Even at night when my thoughts trouble me, I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. And as, a, as Dave mentioned just a moment ago, uh, for those uh, children ages three to four, you are welcome to go to the back for Children's Church. And I invite you please now to join with me in prayer. Lord, so often your word... Um, that you speak to us points to uh, a reality that is beyond ourselves. Um, it shows us um, where you are taking us. And I pray now as we hear your word, as you counsel us through this psalm, that you would shape us, that you would uh, lead us more and more into uh, this joy that you desire to give us. Pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. So, um, it seems to me one of the most compelling aspects of the Christian faith is the promise it has of an honest, resilient joy. Joy is something we want. I, I don't think that's controversial. Joy is something that we, in different ways, are pursuing. Uh, maybe we don't use that word joy, maybe we just talk about like we have a desire to be happy, but even when we say that, we recognize that we can't always be up. We realize that there is going to be different times of difficulty, and after a moment's reflection, oftentimes we realize there are some who seem to have this kind of inner gladness that is able to kind of ride the waves of different kinds of things, and that's, that's what we want. We want what oftentimes is referred to as joy. And it seems to me a lot of how we live our lives are directed around kind of pursuing this joy, usually in one of two ways. Some of us, I think, pursue joy kind of with a strategy that is more about trying to avoid suffering. This is probably how I would think of my default oftentimes. That is, if we can just make good choices, if we can uh, take care of ourselves, 
If we can just kind of do things the way we're supposed to, you know, um, avoid processed foods, exercise regularly, wear a seatbelt, make sure we're spending plenty of time with our kids, invest in savings, and, and try to be generally a good person, there's this sense that if we can just kind of do these things enough, hopefully we can sidestep all of the painful things in life and be able to generally find joy in this life. We try to find joy by avoiding suffering. Another strategy, perhaps of those who are less optimistic, who think it's almost impossible to avoid suffering, I think rightly, is instead to choose to try to avoid disappointment. If we can just set our expectations low enough, then we'll be okay. The most extreme version of this actually is Buddhism. If you're familiar with Buddhism, there's the sense that, that happiness, that joy, comes in, in ceasing to want and learning to want nothing, kind of almost losing yourself, then you can experience peace. And we have kind of our own version of this, I think. If you are one person, you know, may, tell me if this sounds familiar, when sometimes things are going great, and in your mind, you prepare yourself for when the other shoe drops and things go bad. You kind of like get yourself ready so that when something bad happens, I was ready for this. Or even if things are bad, you end up not letting yourself be too bothered by it because you're like, yeah, that's just life. Life is hard. That's the way it is. There's this sense that if we just choose not to want too much, not to be too attached to some sort of desire, then we can find a kind of joy. And it seems to me that both of these in their own way reveal a kind of dishonesty. We can't escape suffering, and I think all of us know that deep down. And we also can't escape desiring, of longing. We're, to be human is to love, and to love means we will be at times disappointed. And this, this dishonesty, I think, is exposed the moment someone close to us dies. At that moment, we realize there was nothing we were able to do to be able to avoid this terrible thing. And we also realize that we can't help but mourn and feel awful about this. It seems sometimes that we have a choice. We can either be temporarily joyful or we can be honest, but we can't be both. And this is why I find what the Christian faith offers to be so compelling, because it offers a third way, an honest, resilient joy that comes not through avoiding bad things, but a joy that somehow involves going through, being carried in the midst of suffering and still maintaining a certain joy. I think one of the great examples of that in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that he is someone who did not have an easy life. He, he had no real family. He has no consistent home. He's moving all over the place. He was beaten regularly, and in 62 AD, he's imprisoned in Rome. He's a church planter who can no longer plant churches. He is isolated from people. He doesn't know whether he is going to ever leave prison or whether he's going to die in it. It seems like the perfect recipe for despair. But when he writes his friends in Philippi, the letter that we have in the New Testament known as the Philippians, it is infused with this kind of overwhelming sense of joy. In the midst of this terribleness, Paul is joyful. 
And he's not alone. You see this repeatedly in the New Testament. James speaks of how we can find pure joy in the midst of trials. Peter, who himself was imprisoned multiple times, who eventually was martyred for, by, for his faith, will write of an inexpressible joy that one can experience in the midst of persecution. And this, in many ways, all traces back to Jesus. Jesus, when he knows he's about to die, the night before he's betrayed, he prays that his disciples would be able to experience the joy that he has. The joy that he has even as he is facing the cross. The New Testament speaks about something mysterious, that as, as part of the Christian faith, as people place their trust in Jesus, the Spirit grants to us the capacity for an honest, resilient joy that lasts even in the midst of suffering. It's spoken of, as it speaks of other virtues, as a fruit, a fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit at work in believers. And, and by fruit, it, it suggests a couple of things. One is it tells us that this is not something that's instantaneous. Like a fruit, it slowly grows. And it's also not something that we can just choose. We can't just will on our own to be, I'm going to be joyful right now. Anyone who does that, there's kind of a falsity about it. It's, you can't just choose for a strawberry to grow. It, 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 it kind of, it organically develops. But even if we can't just kind of force it like a fruit, there is the ability to cultivate it. To live in such a way that this gift of joy can grow in us. And, and that's, I think, what our psalm this morning instructs us to do, how we are able more to take hold of, of Christian joy. Many psalms have all sorts of different emotions. This one shows us the central emotion in verse 9, where he says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Imagine if um, before the service, I'm talking with you, and I say, how are you doing? You say, well, life has been really hard this week, but my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. I mean, uh, that would be a weird conversation, I think. And the first thing I would do is just say, why? But probably even more than that, a part of me would want to know, how? How is it that in this moments as you are feeling this way, you are able to be experiencing this kind of joy. And, and that's what David tells us. And he, and he tells us that it's not just an accident, that this joy that he is experiencing flows from a choice that he has made. And that choice is described in verse 1, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. This, this is the choice that has led to him being able to experience this joy where he says his whole being is glad. I take refuge in you. Say we had made the other choice this morning and decided to meet outside and say at some point just the clouds opened up like they did yesterday and rain came crashing down and suddenly we're all in a fury and everyone is quickly moving. We're taking the stuff in. We're trying to quick pack in. We bring everything into shelter and we just, after a few minutes while the thunder is crashing, we're sitting here knowing that now we're dry and safe. We have now found a refuge in this building. 
And David says, that, that is what has happened for me. I have made God my refuge. And that is the key to my joy. Where do you go for refuge? What do you turn to when you feel attacked, when the storms are around you? David says, where you need to go is to God as your refuge. And this is not just something that he came haphazardly by. This is something that he has come to realize because he has stepped back and he has looked at the way people's lives work. In verses 3 and 4, he speaks of two different groups that he has been watching. So notice in verse 3 it says, as for the holy people who are in the land, that's speaking of, of God's faithful people who have made God their refuge. That's one group of people. And then verse 4 speaks of those who take another God. That's the other group of people. There isn't a third group. David sees only two groups. You either have people who have made God their refuge or you have people who have made another God their refuge. And, and that's because there is no other option. No matter who you are, you go somewhere for a refuge. No matter who you are, you have some way that you're making decisions for your life, somewhere that you seek counsel, whether that's science or therapy or other people. You have something that you are pursuing that matters the most to you, whether that's relationships or success. There is something that matters above all else and whether you ever name that God or not, that is, by the Bible's definition, God for you. Which means all of us are religious. All of us make our refuge in some sort of God. And David kind of like steps back and he just kind of looks at the different people. He looks at those who have kind of made God the refuge and he looks at others. And he has realized something important. First, he, he talks about those who have made... Uh, other gods, their refuge. It says in verse 4, the sorrows of those who take another god for themselves will multiply. Those who make another god their refuge end up not finding joy at all. Idolatry in whatever form it is always is self-defeating. The writer Andy Crouch puts it this way. He says, think about the idol of beauty, the way it expressed in literally unattainable bodily proportions in advertising images, leads some young women to starve their bodies, some older women to subject themselves to gruesome and ineffective cosmetic procedures. Or think of the way that the idol of work and productivity can so easily lead successful executives to neglect their spouses and their children. Thinking even more corporately, think of how a culture that prizes sexual autonomy ends up gratuitously exploiting human bodies, violating intimacy, and terminating, quote, unwanted, unborn lives. Think of how a culture that values international peace and domestic security ends up stockpiling enough weapons to destroy the planet and incarcerating nearly one in 100 men. Do we see what he is saying? Those who find their refuge in somewhere other than God multiply their sorrows. It is a horrible pathway if you are seeking joy. On the other hand, he thinks 
of the group who have made God the refuge. He, he speaks of the noble ones in verse 3. As for the holy people in the land, they are the noble ones, or it could be described as the great ones. Think of the people in our mind who are the great ones. Think of someone like Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr. or Mr. Rogers. When David goes through his mind of who the ones who are the great ones, he realizes they are the ones who have made God their refuge. They have a resilience in the midst of suffering, a joy that is able to last, and they are the ones who have gone to God for their strength. And so David says, that's the choice that I want to make. If you want to experience this joy in life that is able to withstand whatever comes at you, David says, here's what you need to recognize. It comes in making God your refuge. Now, how do we do that? Well, David then develops what this means. After verse 1, he says, you know, protect me, O Lord, for I've made my refuge in you. Then verse 2, he explains what it means. He says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have nothing good besides you. These are two parts to what it means to make God our refuge, to say to God, you are my Lord, that is, you are my master, and to say to God, you are my good. He explains more what he means by saying, you are my Lord in verses 7 and 8. He says, I will bless the Lord who counsels me. You know, one of the most remarkable things when you think about it, one of the most remarkable claims of Christianity is that the God of the universe counsels us. And just think about that for a second. The creator who, who knows every microscopic quart, who, who is able to hold billions of universes in his hand, is interested in helping us to know how to live and actually actively instructs us. That, that is mind-boggling. It's also potentially offensive. Because unless you think you are exactly like God, and if you do, let's talk after, Unless you think you're exactly like God, then there will inevitably be times where you and God disagree. And when that happens, if you are someone who has been told all of your life that the, the most important duty you have to yourself is to follow your heart, to find your deepest desire, and to lean into it, then in that moment where you find you and God disagreeing and God instructing you to do something that is not what your heart is telling you to do, that is not what you desire above all else, then in that moment you will feel threatened. You will feel angry. You will decide that you would rather keep God at arm's length and ignore His counsel. But there is an alternative that David is showing us here, the pathway of taking refuge in God, where he says, I will bless the Lord who counsels me. In other words, as God instructs me, I will say, bring it on. Please speak to me. I will listen. Thank you for telling me. I will listen. Even, he says, do you notice, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. Do you know what it's like in night to have your thoughts trouble you? 
to have your heart saying to you one thing and it being overwhelming. And David says, even then, I won't listen first to my heart. I will listen to you because I trust you more. This isn't just a one-time thing. David, notice, it says in verse 8, I will always let the Lord guide me. This is a lifestyle choice. In the morning, as he's thinking through his day and trying to organize it, he says, Lord, please show me how to live. In his relationships, he says, God, I want to honor you. Tell me how to love others. In his dreams and desires, he says, your will be done. In everything, he is saying, Lord, guide me. This is what it looks like to make God our refuge. And this is wisdom. I mean, isn't that clear when we think about it? If you have to step back and say, when you have a choice between what your heart is telling you and what God is telling you, who do you think is more likely to be right? Jesus actually has a fairly blunt way of speaking of the person who hears God's instruction and doesn't do it. He calls him a fool. He says, the foolish person, basically following his own instinct, that person is like someone who builds a house on sand. And it looks great while everything is good, but the moment that suffering comes, it crashes down because it's empty. The wise person is the person who says to God, you are my Lord, who lets the counsel of God direct him. It's like someone who's building a house upon the rock, and when the storm comes, there is resilience, because it's based on God's instruction. Or as David puts it, because the Lord is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. We find our refuge in God. We find the pathway towards joy as we say to God, you are my Lord. And secondly, David has told us that taking refuge in God as we are seeking to cultivate joy happens as we say to God, you are my good. That's what verses 5 and 6 speak for us. He says, Lord, you are my portion. Lord, you are my cup. Lord, you are the holder of my future. When God's people came to Canaan, God, uh, through, Mo- uh, through Joshua, kind of divvied up the lands um, so that every family suddenly had this new tract of land that was theirs. Can you imagine suddenly saying, guess what? This is your home for centuries. And, and that is the place that you will grow up. That's where your children will grow up. That's where you'll find food. That's where you'll find everything. That is your future. And David says, you know what? My real estate is you. You are my inheritance. You are the portion that has been given to me. When he says, you are my cup, cup in the Bible is a simple image kind of describing a future experience. If you think about it, if you have a, something in the, if you have a cup in front of you, if it is a bitter drink in a moment, your body will be filled with bitterness. If it's sweet in a moment, you will be filled with the experience of sweetness. And David is saying, you, God, are what is in my cup Whatever happens in the future, I know I will experience you. Lord God, you, you are my future. And in saying this, he's showing he understands what God has committed himself to do, how God in his love works with us. If you have been in the church for any length of time, you've likely heard from Romans 8.28, the verse that says, God works 
for the good for all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's amazingly encouraging, but oftentimes when we hear that verse, we don't actually ask, what does it mean when it says that God works good for us? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God promises prosperity in this life. It doesn't mean that God promises us freedom from suffering. God will, and we have seen it, allow His people to experience death of loved ones, family breakup, and other horrible things. God does not promise to protect us from bad things happening in this life. That's not what Romans says. No, the good that is promised in Romans 8.28 is that God will work in us to make us more like Jesus. The good that's promised there is that we will come to experience God more fully and more deeply come to understand His love. That's the good that God promises. God's promise for every person who believes in Jesus is that they will get Him. And that's what David is recognizing. You are my future. No matter what happens, I know you are going to be there. And what he tells us is that the key here of making God our refuge, the key of learning joy, is coming to recognize that not only is this true, but this is wonderful. So in the next verse, what does David say after recognizing that you are my inheritance? He says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When he imagines God as his inheritance, he's saying, this is not like some rocky desert land. This is not some worthless piece of tundra. With God being my inheritance, that means I have the most beautiful rolling hills dotted with trees, covered with luscious grass, besides a river. I have something astoundingly good. Because God is my good. C.S. Lewis um, speaks about the, the strange experience we have in this life where when we're experiencing something good, there is a part of us that is longing for even something more, longing for it to last, even though we know it's slipping through our fingers. How when we look back on good things, and we're feeling kind of this nostalgia, there is an ache that we can't fully explain. And, and here's what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For these good things are not the thing itself. They are the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. Tish Harrison Warren, um, uh, a fantastic writer, uh, writes that that flower, that tune, that country that we haven't visited that is always evoked for us when we're experiencing what is good in this world, that is God. She writes, we believe that the stuff of earth carries within it the sacred presence of God. When we find bliss, 
wonder or glory, we brush up against a solid reality, God's own truth and beauty and goodness. We delight in these things because they participate in God. When we experience the good things in this world, and there are so many good things, we are called to savor them and enjoy them. But we must not make them the center. Because as wonderful as they are, they are finite and they are fleeting and they are meant to help us to look beyond the gift to the giver himself who is infinitely beautiful and delightful. To make God our refuge means learning to say to God, you are my good. You are what I desire above all other things. Psalm 37 puts it this way, delight yourself in the Lord and he will grant you the pleasures of your heart, the desires of your heart. I have to say as hard as I find the first of these instructions of, of constantly having the God be our guide, it is this one that I find myself, I don't know if it's overwhelmed with or, or daunted by, because the things that I enjoy in this world are so good, it is hard to recognize that as good as they are, they are coming from someone who is even greater. And, and if you are like that, I just want to make kind of like two clarifications. First, I believe this... This learning to find our greatest delight in God is, is a lifetime journey, a, a lifetime process of us coming to understand what that means. And a lot of that learning, I think, happens through experience as we come to experience good things and we realize what makes them good, as we come to experience suffering and we realize what's most important to us, as we are brought through these things by God, more and more we begin to realize that what we want in all of this more than anything else is God himself. But I do think at the same time there are, are, are steps that we can take, choices we can make that can help God, do this work in us of teaching our hearts to say that God is good. And one of the primary ways that we do this is through training our attention. You know, as long as our minds are just filled with the news, the distraction, the anxiety, the noise of everything going on around us, it is almost impossible for us to look back and see what really is going on. But if we are able to just take a step back and look. Or even more than that, if we are to take a step back and give thanks, then we begin to see. If you are, like me, desiring to be someone who learns more and more that your hope and everything is found in God, let me encourage you to do something that I am also seeking to do and have almost like a daily ritual of gratitude, some point in your day where you are stepping back and looking and noticing what God has done and just saying thank you. Because as we do this, what we are doing is training our vision to see again and again, this good thing comes from God. This good thing comes from God. He is the one in whom all our good is found. 
Second clarification, when we are saying that our hearts learn more and more to say, God, you are my good, this is not in any way denying the hardness of the things of this life. As much as we might be able to recognize that reality, at the same time, the things that happen to us will still break us apart at times. Family breakup will be devastating. The death of someone will gut us. That doesn't change. But what does change is even as we are in the midst of this sorrow, there is a quiet confidence that grows in us where we know that everything is going to be okay. Because... We have God, because God is committed to giving us himself, and that is what we want more than anything else. This is what it looks like to place, make God our refuge, to say to God, you are my Lord, and to say to God, and you are my good. And as we do this, this is how David, we see, learns to experience joy. This is how he's able to say, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my body also rests securely. Why? Because he knows God is not going to abandon him. He's not going to leave him. God will be faithful. And so he's able to say that in your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. We spoke earlier of um, the Apostle Paul. One of the striking things in this letter to the Philippians that he writes is he's actually writing to console them. He's worried that they're worried about him. And so he says, I want you to understand you don't need to worry about me, even though all of these terrible things are happening. And then he explains why he's able to rejoice. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. That is, my life is defined by Jesus. I follow him wherever he goes. That's what matters to me. And as long as that is true, I can rejoice in this moment. To me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Not because death is in and of itself good. No, death continues to be a terrible thing. But because for Paul, he knows that with death, he will not be abandoned. But he will come to see Jesus face to face and his deepest desires will be met. He is saying, because Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my good, because I have taken refuge in God, I can rejoice. Theologian Henri Nouwen writes that joy is a choice based on the knowledge that we belong to God and have found in God our refuge and our safety and that nothing can take God away from us. Joy is a choice that comes as we learn to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is the the fruit that the Spirit is is growing within us. And I want to say, and I've mentioned this before, but I'll say as we close I feel like when I'm seeing Paul write what he writes and say what he says, he is someone who's like kind of come already to the top of the mountain and he is able to look and see everything with clarity. And meanwhile, I'm like halfway up and I occasionally look around and I begin to understand, but I I don't see what Paul sees yet. 
I'm not able, I think, to have that depth of resilient joy that I've seen in Paul and others that I know have a maturity that I still lack. But I want it. And if you want it too, I invite you to join with me in continuing to journey, to grow in this. And to do so even now in our prayer, I invite you to spend this time of silent prayer as we conclude this time. To use those two statements, Lord, you are my Lord, my Master, and you are my good. To say those things if they are true and where you realize they are not, to use this as a time of confession as we seek to bring ourselves into this place or to let God more particularly do his work of leading us into this place. So let's spend a couple minutes of time of silent prayer and then I will lead us in prayer in a moment's time.